0: Namaste to all of you. I'm glad to be with you in the evening of satsang today. And um, being encouraged by the enthusiastic response which I got last week from the stories about the fathers of the desert, I thought that uh, only a very limited number of people liked the stories about those extreme practitioners. But actually there has been a lot of enthusiasm coming from a lot of people a lot of feedback, who were moved by the aspiration of those, I decided for today, and perhaps the whole month, because we have the Awakening of the Spirit retreat in this month, I decided that for uh, at least this week, as I said, I will stay a little bit on the side of bhakti yoga, on the side of the people who came from the heart chakra, And, um, again, I'm not trying to explain from a yogic standpoint. It would sound, Bhakti Yoga is so beautiful, it's so fascinating. The human heart is so fascinating in so many ways, that to just try to explain some things from the standpoint of yoga is a little bit dry, it's a little bit mechanical. But, in the context of uh, wider mysticism, the path of the heart is very seldom understood. And um, bhakti, this devotional approach, either it is Indian or it is Christian, or as tonight... It is Sufi in within the Islam it has something very fascinating, it speaks a language of its own. In the in one of the very primitive readings of the Vijana Bhairava Tantra, one of the quite simplified translations of that text, when Shiva talks about the method of devotion as one of the 112 methods for reaching Supreme Consciousness. He says, devotion frees. The devotion frees one. Devotion frees the human being. But how? No, we are just talking about, at the best, activating one's heart chakra. But the heart chakra is not the end of the road. The heart chakra is not the hollow around the head. So the heart chakra, how does it lead to a complete fulfillment? How does it lead to a complete uh, awakening of the human being? And that's why we look a little bit into the various aspects of it. And again, some yogic explanations are needed, but it's more like to express the metaphysical truths. When we read the words of Jesus, for example, there there is not only bhakti. Jesus talks about a thousand things in his words morals, and ethics, and behavior, and he announces laws of the universe, and how we should relate to the divine consciousness, and a lot of things are there, so it's not only about bhakti yoga, in a similar way, when we read, like tonight, from Rumi, we try to understand a world, a set of values, something which is universally valid, in spirituality because we live in a world which at least in the last 200 years in Europe it has become a secular world a world which is dominated by politics economics finance business and other such things and in which spiritual people had become marginal they have been marginalized and spirituality is an oddity. If somebody comes and says in the theology it is said so, or in metaphysics there is this statement that there are four yugas in the history of the universe and so on, everybody is like, what? We never learned this in school. This is not part of what is said in the television. This is not part of the general culture, of the general education people who read the the three musketeers of alexandre dumas or who read the david copperfield of charles dickens and so they never read about this like it's never in the main trend of the society whatever mystical people were doing and whatever they were getting and whatever they were living by in the last 200 years approximately from the time of the creation of the united states of america and the french revolution in europe these things have gone lower and lower, and in the meaning that they have not been highlighted. In the 10th century, if you did have any studies, it would have been in a monastery, it would have been religious studies, all the universities were headquartered within religion, and the teaching would automatically have involved science of divinity, theology, mysticism, occultism, and other such things would have been brought up. That's why, nowadays, not only that bhakti yoga is a very irrational yoga, and I'm going to get back to that in a second, but also the whole world has lost contact with metaphysics, with mysticism, and because of this, it's necessary to explain some points of view. A man like Rumi, from whom I'm going to quote tonight, he's an amazing genius. Rumi is quoted with enormous mysteries in the world of mysticism. Rumi tells us, at, in the 12th century, he speaks about the fact that the sun is in the center of the solar system, that a solar system with the sun being orbited around by planets looks like an atom, and the word atom was just a Greek philosophical word. The atoms were not even defined scientifically in any way in the 12th century, and other other mysteries which show that this Rumi, although he was trying to see the world through the heart, This gave him an uncanny thing that in the 12th century somebody says that solar systems and galaxies and atoms are similar to each other and they represent a circular orbiting structure. Where did they get this from? How? Some of the great Islamic mystics, they have been astronomers, mathematicians like Omar Khayyam, the great yogi Paramhamsa Yogananda, he loved Omar Khayyam he even wrote a book in which he commented on the poem on the magnum opus of Omar Khayyam which is the Rubaiyat the offering of Omar Khayyam in which by and he wrote a book yogananda called the wine of the mystics in which Omar Khayyam talks always about getting drunk and getting to know god and being puzzled, because not being able to understand God, it's easy to understand mathematics, it's easy to understand astronomy for him in that century, also in the 12th century, but in another country, in Persia, in today's Iran. And then he compares it with a drunkenness. It's like, I'm drunk, and in this drunkenness I see and I understand things which I cannot explain. In a similar way, Rumi compares sometimes the states of insight with the drunkenness and that's one of the paradoxes of the way of the heart. Experienced a lot by some Christian mystics, experienced a lot by some bhakti yogis from India, like even Ramakrishna in the 19th century, to a large extent not only bhakti yoga, And that's one of the very big paradoxes. Because we, in yoga at least, we are used to understand the world by the laws of metaphysics. And even more, even the laws of metaphysics are not enough for us. We want the precise laws of energy, polarity, resonance, sublimation, chakras, the seven planes of the universe... And even when you have so many technical aids to uh, your discovery, there are still many things which are mysterious. But the, the travel, the metaphysical adventure is explained. All those of you who have done in Agama or who will do a metaphysical workshop You saw that the great yogis like Yogananda and others, they tried to explain very clearly what's happening with the human beings. What's the story about us that we might be living 80 years averagely in this world and we might exist 320 years on a waiting position between two lifetimes in the astral world, in an intermediary world, and then coming back And all that. And then what are the laws which govern that? And what is the fate of the soul? And still there are so many mysteries. And there is so much uh, wonderful mystery in this human evolution and in all that. But in Bhakti Yoga, either it is the Sufism of Rumi, or it is the mysticism of the Fathers of the Desert in Christianity, or it is the Bhakti Yoga from India... It's even more crazy than that. Because, you see, in yoga, we are used to yogis who are even too much boring and dry by announcing the fundamental principles from A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like Patanjali. So I made a commentary on the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali 10 years ago or something like this. And I thought, like, okay people are not going to do too much yoga because this is too dry. No, it was not too dry for me. I was uh, very enchanted to explain what Patanjali is trying to say there. But I could feel... That for people's stories with the fathers of the desert, the life of Ramakrishna, some inspiration, some inspirational stories and so on, they were moving people and understanding the chakras and understanding the energy and understanding Kundalini Shakti and understanding these things. It made people very clear. But in Bhakti Yoga, very often these things, they are skipped. Because it's easy to say you go from level number three to level number four, from level number four to level number five, from five to and so on. This is a trip. You have a description of a trip, you have the map of a trip. But in love, love is something unpredictable in which the whole essence of the heart chakra is the fact that you have to transcend your ego. And if you have to transcend your ego, you have to surrender. You don't control the process. You, Khalil Gibran, who wrote beautifully about love in the end of the 19th century, he said, don't think that you can control love in any way. Because love, if it finds you worthy, like if you are not worthy, you don't even get to know what love is. But if love gets to find you worthy, then love takes control over you. And you go like through a meat grinder. You say like, what the fuck is happening to me? My life is like, like I'm put in a laundry machine and spun and spun. And I have no north and no south and no head and no, like he says, love is going to crucify you. Love is going to destroy your roots and attachment to the earth. But he's also going to crown you. And he's also going to make you reach to the supreme. And In the process of love, it's typical when love is not associated with a lot of Ajna Chakra, that somehow even the people who go in the great adventure of love, it is a little bit like in the human love. But human love very often becomes this svadistana Chakra from Hollywood. And even that one has something beautiful to it. But it's not even the love, love. And even when we get to this normal uh, aspect of love from the heart, it's like there is no know-how to it. The only way to do it is to jump head forward into it. People love love. People intuitively know that love is something very special. Those who cannot they are the tortured souls of Kali Yuga, the inferior souls of Kali Yuga, who are even afraid of love, even afraid of this process, which is destroying your ego. And you have to just jump. And even in the love between a man and a woman, in the societal love, you don't have any guarantee. It's like you jump head forward. You fall in love with somebody and you move overseas and you your life is rocked completely. And if you look at it 30 years later, you'll say, man, I was so crazy in those days, you know. I, but if you say so, it means you are no longer. And that's very sad. It means you have been a bit crazy for love 30 years ago. And now you have become sober. And becoming sober, you actually lost that madness. You lost that insanity of love. And that's why what I'm trying to say here is that exactly is in a real, pure love between man and woman or f- friendship. There is sometimes a love based on friendship, as Jesus describes it. And you just have to jump head forward, there's no guarantee. How do I know that this person who loves me today will still love me five years from now and I don't invest my love into something in which in the end I'm going to lose? It doesn't matter. Francis of Assisi will tell you it doesn't matter because what the fact that you invested blindly, that's exactly what brought you the glory and what brought you the real reward. The fact that you had the courage to jump, to jump into it. Some, most people no longer have this power. No, Khalil Gibran says, don't, don't close the door in the face of love. If love comes to your life, it's going to ruin your life. It's going to mess you up so much and you will be very grateful because love did that to you. And if you say, I cannot afford to fall in love right now, then basically you shut the door in the face of love. No? And if you do that, then love will not come to you for a long, long time. And you will have a lot of agonizing loneliness in your heart. And that's why love is something very precious. But very few people have this confidence of no go into love and kesera sera. No, just jump head forward if it's pure love. And of course, the primary among these is the love for God. When you love God like Rumi did, like Ramakrishna did, like the fathers of the desert did, like Jesus did, and so many others did, where is your guarantee that you are going to reach? That you are going to succeed. That you are going to have a reward. Nowhere. You just jump head forward. And then people say you lost your life. You wasted your life by dreaming some impossible dream. But you will see Rumi in one of his beautiful poems. He just goes the other way. And he says, today I found you and those who laughed of me yesterday... Today they are sorry that they were not looking the way I looked. Because everybody is investing their life in things which sound rational, safe. Don't spend 20 years worshipping God and then you find out that the atheists were wrong, uh, were right, I'm sorry, and there was no God. And then what did you do with your life? No, At least you could have had lots of sex. You could have had lots of fun. You could have accumulated wealth. You could have traveled. You could have done this. You, and now you stayed there in a hut and prayed to God. And now you are sorry. You say, I gave the best years of my life to this thing. And then I discovered there was nothing. It's a tragedy. And everybody is rightly Afraid of this, it says, man, what if I do the wrong investment in my life? That's why investing in the heart, investing in love, it's like terrible. Jesus says, if you lose your life for me, you will gain it. And those who will try to save their lives, like we don't go with Jesus because that's a terrible thing. And so then they will lose it. No? So Jesus turns it upside down and he says you have to have this courage that if you truly, it's an intuition. Dear friends, not everybody comes to spirituality. I have been teaching this yoga to maybe a hundred thousand people in my life until now. And I am surrounded by maybe a hundred people who are practicing yoga, either here with me Or around the world. And declare themselves disciples and followers of this school. Like one in a thousand has survived. My, let's use business terminology. My retention percentage. How much I retained from my customers. My retention percentage is catastrophic. It's really low. Because... Again and again I'm saying. When you go to the big things. Everything sounds so risky. And everything looks like oh. no! There were people. All the hippies believed in something spiritual in the 60s. And then they got fucked. And they quickly jumped to make some money. In the 70s or in the 80s. They became yuppies from hippies. You know, because it was more cool to make business and money than to, say, flower power and make love not war and all that thing. No? In the same way, therefore, there is <clears throat> this formidable risk in spirituality because there are some things in spirituality which cannot be proven scientifically. And the path of bhakti yoga seems to be the ultimate path in this. That, you know, at least with Manipura Chakra, if you do martial arts, at least if there is no Tao, if you did not discover the Tao or the Buddha nature, if it's a Buddhist martial art that you do, because martial arts are sometimes Shintoistic, sometimes Taoistic, sometimes Buddhist in character, then at least you are a great martial artist. You can break with the edge of your hand, you can break bricks and wood boards, you can have self-defense. You know, at least you get something. Even with Hatha Yoga, you say, well, I did never knew if there actually was a god or not, maybe I'll see it when I die, but at least Hatha Yoga kept me healthy and elastic in the body and full of vitality and so on. So there are collateral things which encourage me, in which I will say, well, at least I got something. But with Bhakti Yoga, with a thing like Bhakti Yoga, you risk everything. Because if there is no God, what did you get? What did you get? All your life you have been loving, selfless, forgiving, and all the manipuristic pigs around you, they trampled over you shamelessly and you have been always the one who forgave and loved and let go. you know. And in the end you say, I didn't have power, I didn't have accomplishments, I didn't gather the money, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. And now it all depends on this one fundamental issue. If God is there, hiding behind the curtains, probably I gained everything. And if God is not there, then I'm the fool of the fools, and I have lost everything. That's why Jesus, who is not giving yoga technology, says, hey, at least if you don't find God, you can be very flexible in your body and have a lot of vitality, and so on. Jesus says, you have to lose your life for me. Like you have to have the maya, the illusion, that maybe there was nothing. Maybe I got nothing. So even Jesus, who is archetypal in this way, when he is on the cross and he suffers the crucifixion with a human heart, he says at some point, my God, my God, why have you left me? Like he seems to be abandoned. And that's Jesus who proclaimed himself to be one with God. And thus, this is one of the beautiful, big things which you see when we read about bhakti yoga, that it's a sort of a hopeless love. And some people who are very manipuristic, they say, "No, no, but I don't want to live a life of hopeless love. Then you are not cut for bhakti yoga. Are there other modalities of reaching? Yes, there are other modalities of reaching. Do zazen. Do work on vishuddha, work on ajna. It's not compulsory that it goes through anahata chakra. But as people in yoga know, anahata chakra has a very privileged function because that's where the jivatman is, that's where the soul is, the essence of our soul is related to Anahata Chakra, and going through the heart, we go to the void of the heart, and we go to the center, and it's very easy, relatively speaking, to go through the heart. Yogis say it is possible to meditate on Hara, and to go to the divine level of Hara, and there to meet with uh, um, Rudra Shiva, And from there to reach the full consciousness of Shiva. To enter in God through your Hara. But it is ten times easier to enter into God through the heart. And it is again possible to enter in God through Vishuddha Chakra. But it's ten times more difficult than through the heart again. And it is possible to enter in God through your Ajna. But it's not easy. The easiest for human beings mysteriously, the way we are created, because we are on a water planet and we are dominantly very aquatic, very watery people, nevertheless, is to go through the heart the heart, we are created in such a way. I don't know if there is another civilization on Alpha Centauri or on the constellations around Vega or some other systems in our galaxy or not. I don't know if the people who live there, they have two legs like us or they have six legs like the spiders or something. It doesn't matter. The way we are on this planet is that this is a water planet We are very Svadhisthvanistic, we are very watery and somehow mysteriously our planet when photoed from the cosmos, it looks blue. We even call it nostalgically the blue planet and the blue is not the color of the water element, the blue is the color of the air element. The blue is given by the atmosphere as when you look up in a sunny day and you see that the sky is blue. That's the color of the air element, not of the water. So this planet is watery, but this vadistana has been deemed not enough for the full development of the human beings. And that's why the great masters have made in such a way that this is a planet where we are watery, but at least we have to sublime that wateriness to our heart. At least if we reach the heart then we can do something. And again I'm saying, it's possible to go via the Hara, possible to go via Vishuddha or Ajna, but the heart remains as something privileged. Bhakti Yoga has this advantage, that when you do the Bhakti retreat here in Agama, we always do one in February, uh, a Bhakti retreat where people can learn the very specific things of Bhakti, You learn that there are different ways of relating with the object of the bhakti, that there are different degrees of intensity. Either you shed tears or you have shudders and shivers through your body or whatever is your manifestation of bhakti, how far you reach. Some people have pretty much nothing. It's just lip service. They are quite dry. But again, bhakti is relatively not very technical. There are some simple elements of prayer and meditation, visualization. There is a lot of moral and ethical discipline, like don't break the yama and niyama, don't break the Ten Commandments, so you don't accumulate the anger of God and you don't accumulate negative karma. And for the rest, it's like Saint Augustine said in the 3rd century, love God, and do what you want. It's not that, oh, you have to do the headstand and be a vegetarian. And Even Ramakrishna, who was an Orthodox Hindu, he said, if you love God, even if you eat meat, it will be purified in you because of your love for God. And you will reach something. And if you are vegetarian, but you are an immoral, atheistic asshole the food which you eat will be poisonous like cancer-producing food in you. You know, you will not gain anything by just purifying your diet. You know? Purifying the diet is a by-practice, is a secondary practice. It all starts from this aspiration. That's why I would say let's look a little bit into this magic world of Rumi. Rumi who lived in the 12th century, was one of the men possessed by this heart. He is a super great master. He wrote things of clairvoyance on Ajna as well. He was a mixture between a scientist, a scholar, a lover, a mystic. And he, together with a generation of metaphysicians, are the ones who gave the esoteric part in Islam. The Prophet Muhammad started it very much on Manipura, like it was a matter of survival, fighting with incredible bad odds against the barbaric world. All those tribes of Saudi Arabia and wherever Islam started, they were super Manipuristic, all this Bedouin civilization, and violent, and... Even the prophet said that the color of Islam shall be green, which is a typical Manipura chakra color. No, and then you say, is this bhakti? Is this a loving religion? No, you see that there is very much Manipura in Islam until today. But the great mystics that followed for the next five, six centuries, they were nostalgic for the heart. Because many of them had a great heart. For example, Rumi, Rumi who was born in today's Iran, in Persia. The Persian people, they have a long history in the Persian civilization of the heart. As I said earlier, even Omar Khayyam, the great mystic, astronomer, mathematician, he was a Persian. And there is a great culture of the fact that you have to go through the heart. And then such people, they respected very much the Prophet Muhammad, for being a messenger of God, for being their given messenger of God. They heard about the one God through the Prophet Muhammad and through the Quran. But they could not find very much this Anahata Chakra dimension. And then they created it and metaphysicians like Ibn Arabi or supermasters like Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi, they were the ones who came up with all the heart and they created inside Islam a sub-variety of Islam, an esoteric part of Islam, which until today is called Sufism and which has been split in 12 different schools. Some of them are in Turkey, some of them are in Egypt, some of them are as far as India and there are therefore 12 orient. some of them, quite a few of them exist in Afghanistan, And um, most of them are considered to have started from this Rumi. And they reinstitute again this path of the heart. That trust in the heart. Love. Have the qualities of the heart. Non-violence. Forgiveness. Abnegation. Altruism. Peace. Humbleness. Humbleness. And all the beautiful values which love is giving, the true love is giving, and then you will not be able to explain how, because as Khalil Gibran says, God will play with you like crazy, your soul will become like a ping-pong ball, and God will play ping-pong with your soul, and you will say, what on earth is happening to me? And when the game is over, you will be in the kingdom of heaven, ecstatic, enlightened, perfected, united with God, in a state of ecstatic oneness. And that came precisely from this surrender. This surrender transpires all the time. And... I have selected a small booklet, which are the love poems of Rumi. Deepak Chopra took these poems of Rumi and he made that beautiful musical disc called A Gift of Love. And there are here about 20 poems, very short. Most of Rumi's poems are short. Seldom we have a poem which has like five, six trophies. Most of them are one, two, three strophes, Just a thought, just an expression a short expression. Almost like Japanese poems. A few lines expressing a mood. Expressing a thought. A discovery. And um, I chose this one because they are selected poems of Rumi. Selected with a good heart. And they are selected from a much bigger treatise I can read for you somewhere here. Coleman Barks, uh, an important translator from Sufism, he uh, wrote a bigger book. And... Again, I'll tell you, it's somewhere in the book. It doesn't matter. This is a booklet. It's a brochure, almost. And... Uh, from that book of 100 poems of Rumi, perhaps 15 or 20 have been selected in this little booklet. And I thought, because I loved them when I heard them with music, when I because I loved their contents, not all of them are equally clear. And if it gets you inspired, maybe you will buy or get it to the library of Agama and get a real book, uh, a full book of poems of Rumi, and there uh, be able to go even more to see more of what this genius has written. Rumi was no doubt a genius. He is ascribed, for example, to have discovered the fact that if you love God and express devotion and meanwhile you are spinning around your axes in the Dervish dance, counterclockwise, your Kundalini will rise. He didn't know about Kundalini. Something will happen and your state of consciousness will move higher. This kind of discoveries, of spiritual discoveries, make a man like Rumi, around the 12th century, as a great spiritual genius. Here are some of his poems. Again, the titles are not so important. First of them. In the Orchard and Rose Garden... I long to see your face. This is a mysticism, a metaphor, which is used by Omar Khayyam. The fact that they lived about in the same century is, and Omar Khayyam was a Persian, it gives great questions if Omar Khayyam and Rumi really knew each other and how well, or if one of them wrote and the other one read from him or what. But they use one common metaphor. They call the world not samsara, not maya, they call the road, a ga- the world a garden, a rose garden, or an orchard. The universe in which we live is a garden, and he says in the orchard and rose garden, oh, they see the beautiful part of the world. If you study all the torture which was applied on human beings during let's say in Cambodia let's take Cambodia I could take any other country Burma if you want, Myanmar or something if you take all the torture which was applied in one of those countries to people in the last 500 years you would fail to see the garden, the rose garden and the orchard the world can be a horrible, diabolic hell But you can also choose to see the full half of the glass. And in this full half of the glass, he calls it an orchard and a rose garden. And he says in the orchard, I long to see your face. That's what we all long. Only if it would be so simple to just see the face of God. To know But the curse of the human condition is that until we die, we won't know. And even after we die, if we have a very bad karma, we go in bad hells, in bad universes, in bad astral locations, and there we just fight with our own shit, and we suffer, and we roll over our heads. Where is God? Uh, you stayed 320 years in the astral world, where is God? If you go to Hiranya Loka, there you know, some God shows up sometimes, says Yogananda. But otherwise, even in the astral world, sometimes people are so confused that they cannot put the finger and say, I have seen God, God is 110% there. And for the normal person, God Karmically is invisible. Not forever. When Vivekananda asked the great Ramakrishna, "What is this God that you keep talking about? Can you at least see it?" Ramakrishna, who was never caught with lies, he looked straight into the eyes of Vivekananda and told him, "I can see God better than I can see you now." Like you are the dream. you are the illusion. God, for me, is perfectly clear. So, Ramakrishna had escaped this curse. Ramakrishna and Yogananda and Rumi and Omar Khayam had e- escaped from this. But still, Rumi knows how it is to be a seeker. And he says in the orchard, I long to see your face. Like, if I would have that certitude... Tomorrow I would seek you out for 14 hours. I would not do anything. I would focus. But because I can't see your face, my monkey mind goes and says, yeah, but maybe, you know, maybe I'm wasting my time. Maybe I should keep all my options open. But Jesus and Ramakrishna love exactly those people who kill the other options, who burn their ships. That's what the Vikings did. You know, when you landed, the leader of the Vikings burned the ships. And the idea was we win and then we build new ships to turn back home. Or if not, we die. But there is never going to be the thought, let's run back, take the ships and run home. Running away is not an option. Make it impossible. People today have very little of this determination. I remember, you know, it was like I, I was teaching in those days in Denmark and I was surprised at many Danish people. They were very wishy washy like this. No, they were not having. And then I go to India and at Shivananda Ashram, I was with two of my Danish students and there we find another two Danish women who are just fiddling around through Rishikesh which is a city of yoga. There are at least a hundred ashrams or things in Rishikesh, or there were at least before time. Today, maybe not a hundred are active, maybe only 20 are active or something. And uh, we asked these women, we're pleased to find some Danes there, and we said, what are you doing? And they said, oh, I've been to Swami to the meditation, then we've been, and they were all, so we said, oh, so you are following Swami Shivananda because that was the organization, the ashram. And they shook themselves like we sprayed them with hot water. And they said, no, no, we don't follow anybody. What's wrong with being devoted to somebody? What's wrong with following and saying, I believe in Jesus, I belong to Jesus? That's it. You know, I gave myself to Jesus. You know, kill me if you don't like that. You know, it's as as simple as that. Like to take a decision, to have a commitment for something. So, that's the tragedy. We can't take a commitment because we don't see the face. In the taste of sweetness, I long to kiss your lips. In the shadows of passion, I long for your love. He often mentions passion because it's a characteristic of people from Persia and the Arab culture, the Islamic culture, that they put a lot of Manipura and Samzvadistana And therefore their love, strictly speaking in yogic terms, it would never be pure. It's a love mixed with passion. Therefore it's a sort of sometimes egoistic, fiery. It's not the love, 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 the selfless, unconditional love, the love of God. It's mixed. But even so mixed, because 30% of it is the real love, That 30% will give the result and the the rest is actually more giving like pain. The result of passion is like the result of rajas guna in yoga. When you have too much rajas guna, too much desire, the result of it is in the future you will experience pain because of it. So you have to reach love without passion. Love without attachment. A love which is pure, but he doesn't have it. And he says in the shadows of passion, he is in the shadows of passion. I long for your love. That means there is also love, but I'm not experiencing it in a pure way. It's typical for that environment. In India, they had it a little bit because India is also a fiery tropical country and there is a lot of fire, but less there is more Anahata Chakra in India, and very few Indian Bhaktis, they have this problem that they say, oh, I have too much fiery passion, and I cannot find the love. The love is more clear in the Indian culture, but in this Persian and Arabic culture, where this was happening, there is a lot of Manipura, and there, so he wants a feedback he wants the reward. He is an aspirant. He says, Oh, supreme lover, let me leave aside my worries. The flowers are blooming with the exultation of your spirit. Exultation of your spirit. No, like, Let me leave aside my worries. The worries are coming from Manipuram. Anahata never worries. When you have stress and you are stressed out, and you say, last two weeks have been hell for me, and I'm so stressed out, and then I do yoga, what's the first thing which happens? Uh, I start yawning, I start eliminating stress, which I collected in Manipura. My Manipura chakra collects stress. No? And he says, oh Supreme Lover, let me leave aside my word. Like let me get out of this Manipuristic approach. The flowers are blooming with the exaltation of your spirit. Great mystics all over the planet, they said that flowers are like God. That when you see flowers, the beauty of the flower. Why are flowers beautiful? You give flowers to a woman to tell her that you appreciate her. or Why? Why don't you give her sp- spinach leaves? Why don't you give her celery roots? Because they are very useful. Spinach leaves, you can become like Popeye, the sailor. And with celery roots, God knows what you can become. They are very nourishing. Why do you give flowers? No, because all the mystics in history, all the lovers, they have seen in the flowers something divine. A sign of beauty which is almost beyond this earth. It's the best that this earth can produce. And for those of you who understand, the flowers are the sex of... Plants, it is in the flower that the male unites with the female and there is fertilization and there are fruits. The plants, when they do sex, they they almost always produce flowers. So the flowers are the sexual organs of the plants. You could say it's obscene, but in India they worship the yoni, the lotus flower of the women, and they worship the lingam, or the phallus of the male they don't see any obscenity there they see it's like flowers it's a transfiguration so here he repeats the mystical theories he says the flowers are blooming with the exaltation of your spirit that's why the flowers are blooming when you look at a flower blooming it's exalted divine spirit god manifests there padre pio said, we make a hospital, all the sick people should be surrounded constantly by flowers. In every hospital room, there should be flowers, flowers, freshly cut every morning. Flowers, flowers, exactly as you give to Jesus and you give to Mary and you give to Ganesha and you give to Lord Vishnu, exactly in the same way there should be flowers. Because the flowers are a manifestation of divinity. A great philosopher, I think it was Emerson, in America, he said, only God can make a tree. We cannot make a tree in a laboratory. There are no trees produced by scientists, only hybridized by agronomists, but produced from scratch. No, we cannot produce a tree. No. And even in a tree, he saw God. But the mystics have definitely seen the spirit of God into the flowers. And he said, I want to give away my sorrow. The flowers are blooming with the exaltation of the Spirit. You know? And I'm sitting here and accumulating worries. You know, I live in a world where I'm surrounded. God shows himself, not his face. But the flowers are blooming with the exaltation of the Spirit. And I'm sitting there and torturing myself, not seeing the beauty. He says, by Allah, I long to escape the prison of my ego. That's the problem always. The yogis have said it so wonderfully. Our prison is our ego. In my life, I have met 99% of the people in my life who are so proud that they had a great ego. So proud about their personality and so proud about their ego. And that's the enemy. That's the enemy, you know. One of my yoga teachers was making fun that somebody was some, some of these bigoted Christians. They were coming and saying, Oh, that woman, oh, she likes sex, or she had three sexual partners or something, and she's a whore, and so on, you know. And he said they are fighting so much against a woman who likes sex, and nobody fights much in the society if they are really so good Christians. About being selfish. Like being selfish. Is a hundred times more demonic. Than a woman. Being liberal with her sexuality. I'm not saying necessarily that that is good. If she does. If she is not in Tantra. And she doesn't know what to do with her sexual energy. It can be a vice. But the vice of a man or of a woman. Being a libertine sexually. Is a hundred times less harmful before God than the sin of being egoistic. And yet nobody talks about egoism in the society. And everybody says we have to be proud Frenchmen and proud Moroccans and so on. You know? And they are all in the ego. No? And nobody and everybody condemns some men or some women who want to have a lot of sex or something. Like that's the most capital sin. Than the human. But why not talk against? You know, the prison is the ego. It's the ego which doesn't. So he says, By Allah, I long to escape the prison of my ego and lose myself in the mountains and the desert. In their environment, many mystics were living in mountains, in deserts, just to be a little bit alone, just to be a little bit separated from the society, to be different. Because if you live with everybody, you become like everybody. And if you live a little bit, if you have the courage to be alone, then you have the courage to be different. These sad and lonely people tire me. I long to revel in the drunken frenzy of your love and feel the strength of Rustam in my hands. These sad and lonely people tire me. I remember, especially when I moved from my native country to the West, to a Western country, I was shocked. I said, why didn't people do yoga or something? Because 80% of the people living in that big city, in Copenhagen in this case, they were sad and lonely. They were sad and lonely. Everybody complained, you know. You read things, a man died... And the neighbors found him, after three years, dead in his apartment. Like, how lonely do you have to be that people will find out that you are dead only after three years? And it was because the firemen had to change something in the building. And they knocked at his door and the guy was not... When they opened the door, he was rotten already. He was mummified. He was eaten by the rats and by the cockroaches, you know. He was no longer. He was just a bunch of bones. How How sad and lonely... Is that. Because if that is Milarepa. Then at least you can understand. This is somebody who went like Rumi In the desert. To explore their connection with God. But there were people who pretended. That they lived in a big city with other people. And their life was sad. And lonely. And he says. I long to revel in the drunken frenzy of your life. He often uses the word drunken. He says when love is so much. It's like you have taken ayahuasca. It's like you have smoked marijuana. It's like you've been drinking wine. It's like you took ecstasy. It's like there is something because you feel drunk. You are drunken with frenzy. He says the drunken frenzy of your love. For many people it's like I look at my life and I have been so flat in the last five years. When when will I have some drunken frenzy? I think I'm incapable. Oh, in yoga we talk about enthusiasm. That the word enthusiasm means in God, to be in God. When's the last time when you have been enthusiastic? Enthusiastic like in a drunken frenzy. To vibrate, to be vibrant. No? It's okay for Greta Thunberg or whatever, to go in a drunken frenzy, because she's 16, 17 years of age. And when you are 17 years of age, you go in a drunken frenzy for Justin Bieber, for God's sake, for Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, and you just, yeah, and so on. You are in a drunken, but once the energy of the teenagers has gone, for what are people in a drunken frenzy? No, and then people say, I don't even know, if i so you if i can go there then you do yoga for 2 years 3 years 5 years and when your kundalini is awakening then you can have some drunken frenzy then suddenly you are like a child again suddenly you have that freshness and that energy so he says I, want to, I long to revel. We all long to revel in the drunken frenzy. That's why when we were kids, we were so happy. Because we could be in a drunken frenzy over, over a trinket, over something. But as we get older, we waste our ojas, our sexual energy. We get old, our soul is getting petrified. We don't even believe in God. Then what will you get into a drunken frenzy? oh my God, I saw Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum talking about the climate. I got into a drunken frenzy with it. Maybe if you took LSD and look at it or something, maybe that would produce a drunken frenzy, but otherwise, definitely not. So the question is, What makes us go into a drunken frenzy? Kundalini yoga, sexual tantra, hatha yoga, love for God, if still exists in your heart, if not, don't worry, it will be reawakened with yoga. That's, people long for it. It's like childhood was paradise, because I could get enthusiastic into a drunken frenzy, but in the last 10 years... I'm so flat. No? Then what? People say at least I like ecstatic dance. If I go to one of these trance dance parties, I dance and after three hours, I'm going nuts. No? I remember one of our Canadian students, she was telling me, Swamiji, if I go to a disco and dance on strong music, after 30 minutes, I become an animal and I need to have sex immediately with somebody... ...because something awakens in me... ...and I become so vibrant and so horny... ...that I have to have sex. Hey, at least you can get in a drunken frenzy... ...by dancing in a disco and then going and have sex. At least then you should know how to have sex... ...so as to channel that to some superior result... ...because otherwise... Tomorrow morning, you wake up with a headache, with a hangover. And if you are not careful, you are even pregnant. no? Because you had sex without a condom or God knows what you've done. you know. Then, I mean, at least it has to be done in a way which brings something to you. No? So you can say, I woke up in the morning and last night was not a wasted night. I became a sexual monster and I had three hours of tantric sex and all my energy has gone into the high chakras, and this morning I feel like I'm walking 10 centimeters above the ground. Hey, that was a good use of sex. Then sex becomes a great instrument for it. So, to revel in the drunken frenzy, that intensity, the fact that our souls are slowly, slowly going dead, and we—where where is the drunken frenzy, and how do we use it? I'm sick of mortal kings. I long to see your light. Indeed, mortal kings represent nothing. Today they try always to give like the president of the United States when you see Hollywood movies is like a holy man. You know, any if you spit in the direction of the president of the United States is like a religious blasphemy of the time of the Spanish Inquisition, you know. Well, Usually he's a jerk, you know. It's like people directly said that Donald Trump was a total asshole. Then why not spit in his direction? What's so holy about it? You know, people always have, you know, what about Shakira? What about Madonna? What about Justin Bieber and Donald Trump? You know, people create all sort of fake ideals. And Rumi is destroying those. He says... I'm sick of mortal kings. I long to see your light. I'm like, I want the real thing. With lamps in hand, the sheikhs and mullahs, these are the different leaders of the Islamic society, different degrees. Mullahs are usually religious ones and sheiks are more the social ones. Sheikhs and mullahs roam the dark alleys of these towns, not finding what they seek. How much ambition and how much desire in the lives of hundreds of thousands of sheikhs and mullahs and all of them want to be respected and want to know. And they roam the dark alleys of these towns, says Rumi, not finding what they seek. In the end, they find nothing. It's a wasted life in which the emphasis was on ego and social respectability. That I wanted people to look at me like I'm... Like that's what matters. And he concludes in the last trophy of this first poem... You are the essence of the essence. The intoxication of love. Again, love is compared with a drunkenness. Those of you who did tantric sex in your lives... And if you went over one hour... If you make tantric sex more than one hour, that means you preserve your ojas, and at the same time, it's long time, and pl- you know, you go into an intoxication. Your your brain produces so many endorphins and so much, whatever melatonin, DMT, whatever the brain produces in those pre orgasmic conditions, that eventually you are getting high, and you are making love, and you know, you hear men, women. Do- They keep on saying, oh my God, oh my God, oh my, I'm going crazy, oh wow, wow. No, and it's all pleasurable and beautiful and good, no? And it's like a drunkenness. Love produces such hormones in our brain that it creates something like a drunkenness. Of course, it's a healthy drunkenness and a divine drunkenness. I long to sing your praises, but stand mute with the agony of wishing, in my heart, he also expresses this: that sometimes there was a ridiculous joke when I was young in Romania about what's the diff, what's the resemblance, what's the similarity between dogs and engineers. It was talking about geeks and nerds, you know. So what's the similarity? They both have intelligent eyes, but they don't know how to express anything. Like this is like this. I have so much love and I long to sing your praises, but stand mute with the agony of wishing in my heart. That agony of wishing is, of course, a potential which goes in the activation of Anahata Chakra And even if he is not singing praises, then it is giving him ecstatic states of consciousness. The next, the second poem of tonight is a short one. Just five little short lines of text. The agony of lovers burns with the fire of passion. Again, he makes a very clear distinction between love And passion. Passion is love from Manipura and Zvadhisthana. It's love with egoism. It's love with desire. It's love with attachment. But even there, I wish God. We were seeing an episode with an Asura who was building a house for Shiva and wanted Shiva to be him, to be in that house and be always with him. People want to possess God. It's my God. God belongs to me. You know? And so much things. So love is not the same thing with passion. But he agrees that in his culture, passion is tolerated. It's like it's okay to love God even with passion. God will eliminate the passion. And that sometimes can be painful for you when God is teaching you a hard lesson about how to let go on the passion and the pure love. Will be like the diamond which was hidden in the middle there, and that is the one which took you to God. So he says, the agony of lovers—it's an agony, yeah—because it burns with the fire of passion. It's if it would be clean love, there would be no agony. Lovers leave traces of where they have been, and the wailing of broken hearts is the doorway. God. Lovers. Will have broken hearts. Because they have expectations from God. And you cannot have any expectation from God. Any expectation from God. Is like a chain. That you try to put around God. And God will break those expectations. And then you will be. As the English word says. You will be disappointed. Because first. You appointed yourself you thought that god was going to do something good for you what if he doesn't will you still love him no what if god is first of all sending you a hundred years to hell can't do that to me why not why not and that's why you no know, it's like the wailing of broken hearts is the doorway to god that's why i told you From the very beginning in the introduction to this satsang. In the way of the heart. You just have to surrender. If you don't surrender. And when you surrender. It takes you in such crazy places. Such amazing places. And you feel always that there is grace. And at the same time. That you don't understand anything. I have partly in my life followed the path of bhakti, not when I was very young in yoga, but later. And I was always surprised of this, that when you did things through the heart, you never saw it coming. You never saw God coming. You never saw the light in the end of the tunnel. It's like the divine consciousness is playing with you in the most crazy ways, and then suddenly, voila, it's there. Suddenly, everything is hallowed and solved. And you are full of gratitude. And you say, how did this come to me? How did this happen? I didn't expect it. It's too much. I never saw it coming. But the only thing which you did right was that you didn't fight against it. You surrendered. You simply said, okay, whatever God wants shall happen. I trust in love. I trust in devotion. Even when it looks absurd, I still trust in it. The third poem is, again, a bit longer, but very, very short verses. He says, you come to us from another world. Which is true, because Purusha is a guest in Prakriti. We, whatever we see and we analyze, even this satsang happening now, is an action which happens in samsara, in maya, in prakriti, in the garden of God. And God is not from this garden. Shiva, Purusha, the spirit, is impregnating this garden, is everywhere in every atom, but it is originally not it. And that's why he says, you come to us from another world, which metaphorically, it's not another world, like from another plane of the universe. It's literally a metaphysical thing, where he is right in a very poetic way. He says, you come to us from another world, from beyond the stars and the void of space. Because even the stars and the void of space, they could be... Akasha Tattva on Vishuddha. They could be the mind, the cosmic mind, intelligence of the stars on Ajna Chakra. But God is beyond Vishuddha and Ajna. God is something else. And that's why he says from beyond the stars and the void of space, transcendent, which is literally true. Indeed, Shiva is transcendent. Pure. Of unimaginable beauty. Shiva Satyam Sundaram. God in India. One of the three attributes of God. Is Sundaram. That is beauty. Everybody who witnesses. The vision. Of the divine. Exactly as we spoke about flowers. That flowers. Have the spirit of God. Somewhere. Somehow. Everybody who sees God. Let's keep it simple like this. Finds. That experience, beautiful. It's Like I have seen, some. nobody sees God and says, Oh my God, how horrible. There isn't. The, that reaction cannot come from God. If you have a vision and it's horrible, that was not God. Only indirectly, in the meaning that everything belongs to God, indirectly, but direct, direct revelation, it's always, so he says, of unimaginable beauty, bringing with you, The essence of love. The essence of love. We explain that in Kashmiri Shaivism. Because the essence of love is oneness. I love God and God loves me because I am God and God is in me and I am in God. And therefore, the essence of love is not just a sugar coated emotion i don't know why but i love you so much and so this is sugar coated and it's perfectly okay as a human emotion but what's the essence of love the true cause of love how can lo- god love me and you how can i dare to love god only because of the essence of love which is oneness You transform all who are touched by you. And that you see with people doing yoga. I wish you would have the life of somebody. Like Ramakrishna, like Yogananda, like Shivananda, like whatever. That what did they do before they started? And what did they do two years, three years, five years, ten years later? The people who knock at the door of God... God knocks back at the door of their heart and they are transformed. Everybody who did spiritual work for 10 years is not the same as 10 years ago. I have witnessed this transformation. Some of you have witnessed this transformation. Some of you are just starting this transformation. Some of you are a little bit into this transformation. It's going to continue. It's going to continue, and that's why Rumi is correct. He says, you transform all who are touched by you. Mundane concerns, troubles, and sorrows dissolve in your presence. Even to me, unworthy as I am, people come and say, Swamiji, I came with a big problem to you in the moment when I came in your presence. I forgot what I wanted to ask you. It didn't matter anymore. It was not a problem anymore. No. That's exactly how it is, because in the light of consciousness, many things which before seemed important, they are not important anymore. Mundane concerns, troubles and sorrows dissolve in your presence. When you pray to God... A lot of things are forgotten. Somebody stole a thousand dollars from me twenty years ago. Like, what does that matter? What what's the importance of that? When I pray to God, and when especially when God is responding, and I can feel something, I can feel the drunken frenzy. When I'm in that drunken frenzy, what does it matter anymore? Nothing matters. Bringing joy to ruler and ruled, to peasant and king. This is the real Marxism. This is the real democracy. The real democracy is in front of God, because in front of God, a peasant and a king, a ruler and one that is ruled, they can reach the love of God, they can reach the vision of God, In before God, they are two equal children of God. Whatever is happening in this world of illusion, it's not really important compared to what's happening in the eyes of God. And he continues by saying, you bewilder us with your grace. That's always the thing. Grace, which we discussed about in Kashmiri Shaivism workshops, grace is irrational, suprarational, and incomprehensible. Grace comes. And the only correct reaction is to be bewildered. Like. How did that happen? You know. It's like. Why did it happen? How did I deserve it? You bewilder us with your grace. All evils transformed into goodness. It's like the Chinese story. That one one, one farmer. His horse ran away. And they said, how bad? And he said, maybe. And then the next day, the horse came back with 20 other horses. And they said, man, you are a lucky pig. And he said, maybe. Then the next day, his son tried to domesticate one of those horses and fell and broke his leg. And he said, oh, it's really bad luck with your son. He said, maybe. And the next day, the imperial army came and took all the healthy men in to be soldiers, and then they died in some stupid war, God knows where. Only his son was not taken because he had a broken leg. No? And then again they said, lucky bastard, and then he said, maybe. That's why it is says here that all evils transformed into goodness. Like you don't know why, but something which is very evil, they crucified Jesus. They tortured him. And In the end, it became something, one of the best things which happened in this mankind. Painful, ugly, terrible as it was, it became a gift and other gifts. You know, in Mahabharata, Krishna is running a whole war between two clans. No, it's terrible. Why should spiritual people and people of spirit, educated people fight with each other and killed so many in a terrible war but maybe maybe it was it brought something krishna thought that this war brought a new light on earth a new age in the history of the earth that's why from the standpoint of god there is no evil because all the evils are transformed into goodness but from the standpoint of our ego no there is Some evil and pain and all the rest. So he tells to God, if you transform evils into goodness, it's like you transform dust into gold. He says, you are the master alchemist, making an allusion to the spiritual science of alchemy, which has exactly the same symbol. And he continues praising God by saying, you light the fire of love in earth and sky, in heart and soul of every being. Because love is identity. What am I searching for? You know, Laleshwari says, I went out in the moonshine searching for my soul, and I found out that the same God was uniting with the same God. I found myself. Like what are we searching for? The fire of love. How is it coming? The aspiration. The awakening. The desire to stop the pain. Like Buddha. He saw that the world is full of pain. And he did not accept it. That was just the first noble truth. That the essence of life. Seems to be painful. There is in the end of life. There is death. There is old age. There is disease. There is like, how is life so glorious when it goes into all that shit towards the end of it? You work and work and love and love and hope and hope and in the end you get old, sick and you die. No, like, life is painful. But then he, he, he said, there is a way out of that pain. No? Therefore, who put that light of love to love painlessness to love nirvana, to love happiness, that I don't want to live a life of misery. I want to finish this misery. Even if I had 5,000 lifetimes of misery until now, 5,000 previous incarnations, it's time to bring them to an end. That's what's happening when when God is lighting the fire of love in heart and soul. Through your loving existence and non-existence merge. So poetically, talking about Prakriti and Purusha. That it doesn't matter if it's manifestation or non-manifestation. It doesn't matter if it's Prakriti or Purusha. It doesn't matter if it is nature or spirit. Because he says, through your loving existence and non-existence merge. Therefore, this is the essence of bhava samadhi. This is the essence of uniting spirit with matter, of creating a unified reality. It's not a coincidence that one like Jesus stays in the heart, halfway between spirit and matter, exactly in the middle chakra, halfway from heaven, halfway from earth, son of man and son of God as he was called. Through your loving existence and non-existence merge. All opposites unite. This is like taken from Lao Tzu. Yin and Yang, the opposites, they unite. They are one, that is the Tao, the unified thing. All that is profane becomes sacred again. For people who don't see this, sex could be profane and it is considered as profane and profanating and so on, non-spiritual in most religions. But look, the tantrics of India and Tibet, they managed to look more carefully, and they saw that sex is like the flowers on the trees. It's beautiful, divine. It comes from God. The flowers bloom because of the Spirit of God. And therefore, men and women make love because of the Spirit of God in the end in the essence, at the last resort, and why not go directly there and see that? And that's why he says, "All that is profane becomes sacred again." You, know, you give some money to Swami Shivananda, and Swami Shivananda builds an ashram, or you know it's, pro- it's sacred again. It was just money. Maybe some of it was dirty money, blood money and then it's put into something, you give some money to Jesus. Will Jesus use them ugly? No. You know that when you give some money to Jesus, Jesus will put those money to a great use. And you are confident. That's why he sees this alchemy, because he says, through your love, existence, and non-existence merge, all opposites unite, all that is profane becomes sacred again. That's why Sri Aurobindo, who loved this, he made the symbol of his love initiative with the six-pointed star of David. One triangle going up, one triangle going up. All the opposites unite. Everything becomes sacred again. Heaven and earth can be united in the heart. Another poem, shorter. He says, "O oh God." let all lovers be content. Of course, he means about the lovers of God. Yes, because uh, he always speaks about love, like love is a sweetheart, and he compares it with the love from Svadistana and the love from Manipura. He's always dancing into this innuendo, where there is a double entendre or even a triple entendre to what he says. He says, Oh God, Let all lovers be content. Give them happy endings. Let their lives be celebrations. Let their hearts dance in the fire of your love. It's a beautiful transfiguration. I have analyzed the lives of many people who lived through this bhakti and love of God. And for some of them they have been terrible ordeals, pain, pain. And others, now, look at the life of Kahlil Gibran, who wrote so beautifully about love, and see how his life has been, you know, how much turmoil and uh, eventually persecution was in his life, early death and all that. You know? But it's like a wish. It's like a blessing. You know? Like, I know that God is playing ping pong with the souls of men and women And I know that sometimes this turmoil, because people won't let go, people won't let go of their ego, of their attachment, of their attached passion. Sometimes God has to shake them really hard to take these things off. The divine consciousness has to act really strongly. So love is a merciless master, as they told to Virgin Mary, you have brought Salvation to Earth, but also your heart will be broken no, and indeed, Mary saw her son she was still alive, and her son was crucified as a sinner between two thieves, between two ordinary thieves. he was tortured, beaten, abused, and then you know there seemed everything seemed to be absolutely hopeless and ugly. So you can imagine what was in the heart of that woman, what happened to her boy, to her young man. So here, of course, he wants happy endings for all. He says, you know, may all of them reach God, may all of them fulfill their goal, let their lives be celebrations, let their hearts dance in the fire of your love. Sometimes it is. Even Ramakrishna, he was so much celebration and dance and chant, and still he died with a painful cancer. He had an agonizing cancer. In his love, in his compassion, there was so much of these ups and downs that God was playing ping-pong, even with the soul of Ramakrishna. Then he approaches God so beautiful. he says, My sweetheart, you have aroused my passion your touch has filled me with desire. I'm no longer separate from you. I find it adorable that because of the svadistana and Manipura from this Islamic culture, he found the metaphor to treat God like it's his girlfriend. Not only a lover, but a female lover because he is a man and probably not having any homosexual tendencies, he thought about a love as something of the opposite gender. And therefore, he treats God as a female, a beautiful female. No, and he says, my sweetheart, you have aroused my passion, not my love, my passion. No, in the beginning, it's like I'm horny for God. No? And you, you're touched has filled me with desire. It's like a foreplay. It's like arousal. I am no longer separate from you. This may have a very passionate side to it. I'm hot, but the final verse says I'm no longer separate from you. There's a union. I am in you. I am with you. It's love. It has become love. He uses this symbolism several times in his poems that he addresses God as his girlfriend, comparing, therefore, intuitively, in Sufism there is no sexual tantra, so they are not having sexual practices, but they were so close to it, because both Omar Khayyam in Persia and Rumi, who was born in Persia, but he moved more to the West, and eventually he lived in Turkey, in today's Turkey, both of them, they describe something about this love for God, comparing it to a sensual love, comparing it to a sexual love, which is very paradoxical. But they could see the communion, that Svadhisthana goes to Anahata, and Anahata goes to Sahasrara, and where is the limit? When did you cross the borderline? One goes into the other, and therefore, your love for God is like your love for a lover. It's like you say, you have aroused and your touch has filled me with desire. Like he's a very kinesthetic person and he is excited by touch. I am no longer separate from you. Therefore, he describes now in this poem, obviously, a moment of mystical union, a moment of samadhi. A moment, you know, he says, now, when I write this, I'm no longer separate from you. He says, these are precious moments. And indeed, these are precious moments when you are in that. I beseech you, don't let me wait. Let me merge with you. Like, it's perhaps not the ultimate. It's not. He is not in bhava samadhi. He wants to become one. But he says, I'm no longer separate from you. No, says, these are precious moments. I would like to stay in this embrace, in this kissing, in this penetration, in this touch, in this desire, in this passion, forever. And he says, don't let me wait. Let me merge with you. Even there, he asks for permission because what can he do? He cannot force God in any way. He says, Don't let me wait. Let me merge with you. This is the path of bhakti yoga. It's a path of humbleness where you just ask. Ask for mercy. In other yogas, you would force your ajna chakra to visualize. You would do. You would rise your kundalini. You would push. You would be more forceful. In bhakti, especially also in the way in which Rumi sees it, there is just this begging, you know, God, take me in you, take me with you. It's like you are with your most perfect lover, and all you want is just to be one, just to have that oneness. Next poem, we still have time for a couple of them. Now you got into the atmosphere, you understand more and more the spirit of Rumi, the approach of Rumi. He says in the early dawn of happiness, like when I was created, you know, when I was a pure soul, you gave me three kisses so that I would wake up to this moment of love. He has a moment of love and he realizes it's because God gave him three kisses. Like there is a blessing. We all have received those three kisses. And when you will have that moment of love, you will remember them. You will see. It's a metaphor, but it means our soul is pre-programmed to come back to God one day, to reunite with God. And then I say as a yogi, why not today? Why not in this life? Why wait? If you are pre-programmed to go back to why wait another 500 lifetimes in which you suffer like an idiot and you build illusions And stupid dreams. And why not now? I tried to remember in my heart. What I dreamt about during the night. Before I became aware of this morning of life. Life is like a morning. You wake up. But then you forgot what was before. What you were in your previous life. What you were between those two lives. And what you were in the beginning. When you are the pure spirit. How did you come into this samsara? to become what and when and he says i tried to remember in my heart what i dreamt about during the night before i became aware of this morning of light i found my dreams but the moon took me away the moon so beautiful so much described in islamic and in uh, indian poetry but nevertheless the moon acted as a factor of confusion. I found my dreams, so he was about to find out, but the moon took me away. The oblivion, the Svadistana, the Maya, the illusion, the beauty of the garden, it lifted me up to the firmament and suspended me there. I saw how my heart had fallen on your path, singing a song. Simple, beautiful poetry no, he said, I did not manage to understand, to remember about those three kisses or something. But I just, I, because I was confused by the moon, the moon hypnotized me. You know, and I just saw that my heart had fallen on your path, singing a song. My heart was singing a song to God. Between my love and my heart, God being his love, between my love and my heart, Things were happening, which slowly, slowly made me recall everything. So love is a method of awakening, because my heart is on your path singing a song, and then between my love and my heart, between God and my heart, things were happening. Like It's very muddled, very unclear. That's why I told you, Bhakti Yoga is a path in which you have to surrender and be patient. You don't see it coming. As no, it's just an amazing alchemical game which God is playing with your heart. And then he, he saw the result. He said, slowly, slowly, made me recall everything. You arouse me with your touch, although I can't see your hands. That's the miracle, right? Like, who is God? Ask all the mystics who have gone to an intimacy of God, you know? And Who is God? How do you see Him? When you see Him, you are like Ramakrishna, you know? It's like, you aroused me, but I didn't see how you aroused me. You aroused me with your touch, but I never saw your hand. It's like an act of magic. You have kissed me with tenderness, although I haven't seen your lips. Like, everything is coming to us, as through a grace, through a magic. Because God plays this game that for a long, long time... He keeps hidden. Because first you have to pass your spiritual tests. Like your intuition simply says, I want to go there. I want to do that. You are hidden from me, but it is you who keeps me alive. Like what is life? Life is God. Life is not some biological phenomenon which has no meaning. Life is from God. And therefore you are kept alive Because God wants you alive. Life is in the hands of God. That's why he says you are hidden from me. But it is you who keeps me alive. That's the secret force. We can say prana keeps us alive. But where does prana come from? Who is the master of the prana? What rules of a prana? So he says you aroused me but I didn't see your hand. You kissed me but I can't see your lips. You keep me alive. And yet you are hidden from me. Like I can see that I am alive. I don't know what keeps me alive. Perhaps, and here it's one of the real beautiful strophes, very profound. It says, perhaps the time will come when you will tire of kisses. I shall be happy even for insults from you. I only ask that you keep some attention on me. This is the beauty of an extraordinary humbleness, you know. He's not even asking for happiness. He's not even asking for gifts. He said, may all lovers be content. Give them happy endings. May their life be celebration. No, but about himself, he says, maybe one day, I don't know how this game of love goes. Maybe you'll even torture me. Maybe you'll even, no, he says, I shall be happy even for insults. When God insults you. Like bitter things from God. I only ask that you keep some attention on me. Because if God keeps no attention on you, that's the ultimate nightmare. That's the outer darkness. That's, if God forgets you, what will you be? Where will you be? Of course, God doesn't forget anybody, but it's still uh, mentioned as a mystical thing. No? He says anything. I just want to be with you even if you treat me as a dog. Yogananda in one of his poems says, God, give me the most humble place in your kingdom. You know? Like I don't want to be a prince. I don't want to be the king of Shambhala. I don't want to be known. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be anything. Just give me a place there in the fire of your love. You know, As long as I am there, I exist. I am, to be or not to be. You know, it's to be. Otherwise, no, he says, I'm not so. He says, just keep some attention on me. Even if it's unpleasant, I'm still with you. No, that's what matters. No, we saw this also in the case of Jesus, no, that he did something where his relationship with with the universe, became very unpleasant. Is it your face that adorns this garden? It's the universe is the garden, the world, you know, and he says, is it your face that adorns this garden? You know, Like you see, you know, you go somewhere, you see the portrait of the king, you know, we don't have one in this hall, but there, it's many places, you know. Is the portrait of God everywhere? Do you see God everywhere? Is God shining through? says, is it your face that adorns this garden? Like the whole universe is sealed with the seal of God. The Mahamudra, as the Tibetans call it. You can see the Buddha nature in everything. It's like a seal. They call it a mudra. Everything is sealed with the sign of the divine. But nobody sees it, you know. And he says, is is it your face that adorns this garden? Is it your fragrance that intoxicates this garden? He speaks so sensually about a smell like jasmine or something which is intoxicating. A smell which is so beautiful and so perfumed that it gets you like drunk. Like you are in a drunken frenzy. Is it your fragrance that intoxicates? Is the universe smelling of God? No. Because it has the seal of God on it. Is it your spirit that has made this brook a river of wine? It's a brook. It's a small river. It's a small streak of water. And he says, your spirit made it. It's an allusion to Jesus who turned the water into wine. Now, earlier... In the century, so he says, "The spirit of God goes into the water, then the water is not water anymore; it can become anything it becomes soma, it becomes immortality it becomes in, and it becomes a river of wine because people might not know much about soma or other things, but everybody knows about wine that wine is a thing which is a little bit like water it 's a watery drink, and then you drink it and you feel different, you feel." Into an altered state of consciousness. So he says, "Is it because of your spirit that even the water has become a river of wine, and we're intoxicated?" No, I love my forest, and then I'm ready to kill somebody for it. I'll make war. I become possessive. I become attached. I become everything. You know, it's a river of wine. This universe is intoxicating. It is a, contains a river of wine. That's why I'm getting attached. I'm getting caught in the Maya. I'm getting, you know, and it all is because of the divine, as Jesus said, you know. It's here, you know, it's all here. Hundreds have looked for you and died searching in this garden where you hide behind the scenes. He means not that everybody who searches for God finds There are many people in the New Age subculture who pretend that they search for something spiritual. And with all modesty, I have to say that I can see that sometimes they do it in the wrong way. They have no gurus, no teachers, no tradition. They are full of ego. They are full of competitiveness. They are full of other things. And they will not find... I'm sad to say I don't want to pass any judgment, but they won't find. And Rumi says it, hundreds have looked for you and died searching in this garden. Where you hide behind the scenes. That's what God is. He's hiding behind the scenes. Only for Ramakrishna he's not hiding. Because Ramakrishna found him. And then he says, I can see God as clearly, more clearly than I can see physical people. But for the rest, Vivekananda, for example, he said, where is this God? I don't believe in this God. There is no God. no. And therefore, he says, it's not as easy as it sounds. Many search, many people have an intellectual curiosity, Many I've seen people with mental diseases who are having Shakespearean questions, like to be or not to be. But their quest was an unhealthy quest, an imbalanced quest. And then he gives a solution. And he says, But this pain is not for those who come as lovers. Like the thing which is required is that you should love this mystery. That you should love this eternity. That you should love this sacredness. If you do it without love, you don't find. You see, that's exactly the when you read the poem of Omar Khayyam. When he's mathematician and Muslim and astronomer, he simply says, I don't know why I'm born. I don't know why I came here. Now I soon have to die. I don't even know why I came. He's puzzled. Because the whole universe is a mystery And God is hiding behind the scenes. And God is the one who would give you the clarity, the answer, the meaning. But he's hiding. Why? Because Rumi believes he wants your love. There is a password. And that password is love. And if you come without love, the path can be much more difficult. Again, I can understand the path of the Zen Buddhists of Japan, the Zazen. I can understand many paths from Vedanta and other things, Patanjali Yoga in India. Again, I can understand and I know that there are other paths. But for Rumi, Rumi thinks that if you do it without love, you will not find the entrance, you will not find the gate. And he says hundreds have looked for you and died searching. Again, we can say, but they will be reincarnated and they will try again. Yes, of course, there is no end to this story. But he sees it in a limited way. He says, what if I told you that in this life, none of you will find God? You will find him in 2000 lifetimes, but not in this life. Then it's like, oh, shit. You know, it's like it's there is this hope. There is this wish. There is this that, you know, we want to see something, feel something now, in this life, in this way. And that's why he, say, he sees this as a tragedy. He says, hundreds have looked and died searching in this garden, where you hide. But this pain is not for those who come as lovers. You are easy to find here. You are in the breeze and in this river of wine. When there is love, because you love God, God loves you and doesn't make it difficult for you. If you come to God on Manipura, God will come back to you on Manipura. No, let me give you a competitive path. No. But if you come to love with modesty, humbleness, love, forgiveness, then also God forgives you and is humble and modest and therefore it's easy. So he says, when you come as lovers... This problem is not there. He says, you are easy to find here. You are in the breeze and in the river of wine. Then, indeed, your face adorns the garden, your fragrance intoxicates the garden, and your spirit has made the river into wine. Let's stop with this next last poem, which is just four lines. Know that my beloved, again he talks about love, like about, his, about God, about his girlfriend. Know that my beloved is hidden from everyone. Know that she is beyond the belief of all beliefs. Know that in my heart she is as clear as the moon. Know that she is the life in my body and in my soul. Pure poetry. I almost don't feel like commenting, like spoiling it by commenting it. Because basically, he declares the transcendence of God, the impossible to see Him with a mind to find Him. But at the same time, he says, Know that in my heart, she, like he speaks about Shakti, God as Shakti, she as the mother principle, she is as clear as the moon. No that she is the life in my body and in my soul. Again, the same thing, clear in the spirit. Then he sees her like Ramakrishna sees God. In my mind, in my heart, she is as clear as the moon. There's no doubt. It's not that she is hidden and maybe I'm talking nonsense. No, she is as clear as the moon. Know that she is the life in my body and in my soul. The life of the body And the life of the soul. How do we have a soul and a consciousness? How do we have a body? And this body is endowed with life. What is the source of life in this universe? Materialistic scientists keep telling us that life is an accidental process. Which happened because carbon, oxygen, methane and I don't know what, ammonia. Have met with each other. It's nonsense. For the mystics, life is a deliberate creation is a materialization of god's will and spirit and that's why your life is sacred because it's from god and god is the life in your body and soul and when you reach his level of consciousness then in your heart god is as clear as the moon You know that in Arabic country there is very little cloudy time and the sky is most of the time the desert sky and it's very clear, very, very clear. So the moon in the Arabic countries and in Persia is shining beautifully and very intensely. That's why it is um, used as a symptom. Maybe I will read more at some other time we went a little bit into the beautiful universe of Rumi, how he loves God, how he is devoted, and some of these principles of how you should love God. It's always a mixture. Ramakrishna said in Kali Yuga, Bhakti Yoga is a must because people don't have the power of the rishis, the power of the great yogis of yore, the world is very bewildering for people. People are confused and the only thing which sweetens your parkour is love. And therefore, Ramakrishna, Yogananda, even Shivananda, and many great yogis on the 20th century, they recommended lots of bhakti. They taught hatha yoga, they taught laya yoga, they taught kundalini yoga, they taught karma yoga, they taught jnana yoga, they taught a lot of other things, even tantric yoga and so on. But they all recommended that a good amount of bhakti will help enormously. Then you will not search for God in this garden and die searching. Then you will have the joy of finding God before dying. And then the search modifies. It's another level of this search. May you all enjoy in the light of this bhakti. May your heart be aroused by the Beloved with her touch, with her grace, with her lips. And uh, may you enjoy some of the great joys which are given by the awakening of the heart, when you perceive the, the divine aspects. Thank you all for joining tonight, in another evening of love, different from the fathers of the desert, and yet the same, it's the same God, it's the same beauty, and we will see if next week, I continue to keep it this month, with Bhakti, or if some other inspiration is coming to me, but for now, this was it. Thank you all for joining tonight.